You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Death is never a welcome guest in our lives, uh, especially when it comes quickly. It can be difficult, can be challenging. Uh, but a friend once told me that when you go through situations like this, that you will find God's special grace there for you in these moments. And I didn't quite know what that meant until I was actually going through it, and then I recognized what he said was true. God's grace is present, even in your middle of your grief, in the middle of your difficulty. He is there with you. You know, when we talk about Psalm 23, we talk about that, you know, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me, the shepherd's still with you valley of death. He's still there with you, even when it doesn't feel like he is. And so, if you take things at a day at a time, I believe you'll see glimpses of God's goodness in the midst of it all. And this morning, I wanted to talk about God's grace in grief. God's grace in grief. And I just want to share with you a few things about grief. First of all, that as Christians, number one, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and 14 says this, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so you will not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Take note of that there. So that you won't grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So there's an understanding that we needed to come to is that early Christians understood the role of death in the life of a believer. And they understood that death was a part of life and death was not the end of their story because those who had faith in Christ, they uh, had to look forward to being with the Lord forever, being in eternity with him being in the place that Jesus had prepared for them, especially for them. I want you to think about that for a moment, that Jesus has prepared something especially for you, for when you go to be with him. And we're not to be like the rest of the world that fights and claws and struggles and battles with death. Or that when we're facing our final moments that we're to doubt God or profane his name or to claw and cling to life so desperately as though that this is truly the end for us and there's nothing more after that. The early Christians understood that they faced death on a regular basis for the Lord and at any moment they could die for him. But they took comfort in the fact that he was with them, and that there was a hope beyond where they were going to be. Even Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. He says, we are confident in this, that when we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord, that even though we have the body in the funeral home or the body at the funeral, or as we lay a body into a tomb or in the ground, that that person's not there anymore spirit and their soul is with the Lord forevermore. And they are more alive now than they had ever been at any other point in their life. They're not old. They're not missing teeth. 
You know, they don't got diabetes. You know, they're not struggling to get by. They are renewed and young and vibrant and with the Lord. And we sometimes want to hold on to people. Believe me, I want to hold on to people. But it would be unfair to not let them go to that glorious place where they'll be with the Lord and to realize there's no going back after that and to realize you don't come back to this earth old. That once you're done and you're young, that's the way you are for good. Aren't you glad? And all the older folks said, amen, right? We know that we are uh, receiving a life that will endure forevermore in the presence of the Lord where there is joy and there is peace. The saints of old, you know, in the New Testament times didn't question God, didn't doubt their faith, didn't shake their fist at God. They died gracefully knowing that their time had come. Even the saints from when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, that when it was their time to go, they said, you know, it's my time. And they were ready to meet Jesus, and they looked forward to meeting Jesus. What a different perspective we need to have in the world today to recognize that death is a frightening thing, and it's something that we don't necessarily welcome. And even though the apostles knew what laid uh, in their future, they didn't embrace death in a sense like, yeah, kill me now. But they tried to escape persecution. They tried to escape death. And, and the Lord was gracious in those situations. But if it did happen, they recognized, like Paul said, I have run the race that is set before me. I have finished the course. And there awaits for me a crown of righteousness for all those who love the Lord's appearing. Who love the Lord's appearing? Do you love the Lord's appearing? We don't need to worry or be fearful of death. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. But we are to grieve and mourn. You say, well, Pastor Dan, like, you just gave us this encouraging word. Like, what do you mean to grieve and mourn? Well, think about it this way. You know, burial traditions among the Jewish people, that they mourn from anywhere from 7 to 30 days. 30 days was worse in certain, like, really rare circumstances. But on average, people would mourn the death of a loved one for a full week. And interestingly enough, that in Hebrew custom and tradition, when they buried a body in the tomb, for three days they didn't do anything because they, were, they believed that the soul would kind of just walk and wander around in the tomb looking to reenter the body to resurrect it again. So they believe in the course of three days, a body could be raised again, which is not a strange concept when we think about Jesus said, on the third day I will rise again, because that was already a pre-established idea among the rabbis and among Hebrew tradition. But I want you to notice this, because when Jesus came to Lazarus' death, what time did he come to raise Lazarus from the dead? Not the third day, but the fourth, so that there'd be no other explanation other than it had to be God that rose him from the dead. And they would take those days afterwards and they would just grieve and mourn. And the whole community would come together. And it would be this moment where everyone would be together. They would be remembering and they'd be crying out and they'd be singing laments and they'd be praising. And they understood that that was something that was needed to happen. The Hebrew people took time to mourn. Today in our modern world, we don't take time to mourn. We just move on. Because really, we have a problem with death. Believe me, I don't like talking about it either. It's not like something you engage in conversation with over coffee. You ever thought about your death? No, not often. 
No, I don't think about those things. So these are things, and, and honestly, even when you talk about with folks who are either at a terminal point in their life or they're older, it's not a comfortable conversation, and usually the subject is changed fairly quickly. But they understood the need for mourning because when you're so close to someone, it takes you time to get over that. And shame on us if we ever get over it. They're still part of us. They meant something to us. They had a part and a role in our lives in some way. And so when there is great love, there is often great grief that goes with it. But there is also great grace. We mourn with those who mourn. Times of gathering together to celebrate the life of someone allows us to be able to bring comfort and to help and to show support to those who are still living. For many of us who know someone who's uh, had someone pass on, for us, our grief ends at the funeral. But for the person that's lost someone, their grief goes on. They go back to that empty house, that empty bed, that empty place at the table. And it's often said that the difficulty of grief lasts from anywhere from 9 to 12 months after you lose somebody. So even though we're done, we've sent our cards and we've said our sympathies and we've paid our respect to the funeral, there's still people that are still going through the intense levels of grief. Sometimes a card, a text, a phone call, especially on certain special days, can mean a lot to somebody on that person's birthday, on a wedding anniversary, at Christmas, at Easter, at days that were special. When, after that uh, person has passed, still remember those who are grieving even months after because for them, it's still an ever-present reality. Did you know there are stages of grief? Stages of grief. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did a study on grief, and she said that most grief falls into a cycle of about five things. And they usually go in this order. And first it starts with when there is death in your life, it starts with denial. Now, denial is when you cannot believe that the death has occurred and you refuse to acknowledge the reality of the situation. And the shock and sorrow is too much to bear. And so you might even hear somebody say, like, no, no, that can't happen. That can't happen to so-and-so. They were so vibrant and so strong. When you're hearing that, that's denial. Because it's so overwhelming that the brain can't process what's coming in at the order in which it's coming in. And it's so shocking to lose someone so close to you that the immediate response is, no, no, that you're wrong. And sometimes they have to see it for themselves before it settles in. The second one is anger. And once the gravity of loss is settled in, grief turns to blame. Anger at God for not answering the, your prayers. Anger at the doctors who could have done more to save them. Anger at family members and siblings that you feel as though they didn't do enough to help the deceased. You might find yourself in these times becoming edgy, easily irritated, emotional and difficult can, to be around. Can I just let you know that's normal? If you've had someone that's had someone pass in their life and then you talk to them they're kind of like that's normal because they're dealing with a lot because it's overwhelming their brain it's overwhelming their heart and they just can't deal with everything that's going on right now can you show grace to them show patience with them you know listen to them do those things that they need at that moment 
The next one is bargaining. After anger settles in, bargaining. This is when a person begins to bargain with God or with themselves to try and change the outcome of the situation. And God, if you heal them, I'll be in church every Sunday. Yeah, right. God, take them, not me. You know, get, let's switch places. You take me and, and, and they can stay. God, I will give up everything to see them better. And desperation settles in. And sometimes we might even blame ourselves for not doing something that we thought we should have done. I should have recognized the signs early and taken him to the doctor. I should have, I should have been there when he passed or when she passed. And we blame ourselves. And so we have to be careful this stage because sometimes we're trying to do something with God or with ourselves that will really not affect anything. We have no control when a person passes. Follow shortly thereafter is depression. That's when the gravity of our, the loss settles in. We feel the absence of that person in our life. And we feel the intense sadness, emptiness that goes along with it. Life seems to lose its color and sense of meaning. It often becomes hard to get up or even know what day it is. Many days you feel dazed and numb. Can I just tell you that's also normal? There's times where you're in the middle of your grief, you start a pot of coffee going or you pour yourself a cup of coffee and it gets cold and you go and put it in the microwave, you close the door, you walk over there and you forget what you were doing. You know why? Because your brain's going through trauma. Because your heart is overwhelmed. That's normal if you feel like you don't have it all together. It's okay, you lost somebody. It happens. Depression can last for a long time if you're not careful. Eventually a person settles into acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean that we don't feel a sense of loss or pain or sadness. It just means that a person has moved beyond the emotional responses of the moment where they feel like they're coming unhinged. Instead, they come to a place of accepting what has happened and how life will be going forward. The important thing to remember is don't get stuck in a stage. There's stages of grief, denial, you know, anger, you know, bargaining, depression, acceptance. It's easy to get stuck. People will sometimes get stuck in denial. Like you'll talk to your mom about the loss of somebody and they may just change the subject. They may not want to acknowledge it. You might want to talk to a sibling about a grandparent passing and then they just will like not even acknowledge it. They're still in that period of denial. The ones that people get stuck in the most are anger and depression. Sometimes they get stuck and settle there. They don't ever move past to the next stage in their life. Usually that anger leads to some kind of substance abuse to be able to forget things. They might push people away from themselves because they've become so angry and so upset over what's happened that they just can't bear to be around anybody. They don't want anybody to get closer to them, so they close in. Depression settles in where there's times where people don't do anything. They just live from one day to the next, and every day just kind of runs into each other. But I want to encourage you to do what Job did. Job heard about the death of his children and the loss of all his possessions. And it says in Job chapter 1, 20 and 22, that when he heard these things, he wrote, it says that Job tore his clothes, which was usually a sign of grief and mourning among the Hebrew people. It says that he fell down on his face and worshipped. He did what? He worshipped. After the worst news he could ever experience, that all ten of his children were dead, that everything that he owned was gone, 
And he fell down on his face and worshipped. Why? Because Job had a routine in his life that no matter what happened, he was going to still be the same person that he worshipped even in the middle of grief and difficulty. Job did the same thing that he always did before bad things happened. He worshipped God and kept a heavenly perspective. Prayer, worship, and the Word can be a helpful comfort in your life in times of grief and a distribution of God's grace when you need it. This is not to say that you'll always feel like doing this. Can I tell you that when my dad passed for about three or four days, I didn't want to listen to any worship music. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to open God's word. Because it hurt. And it was terrible. And it stunk. Okay, I'm just going to tell you it stunk. All right. But eventually you've got to get beyond that and to recognize that there is strength and grace and the presence of God in the worship of him. That when we comfort ourselves with the words of Scripture, when we worship him in those times where we allow the music to do a healing work in our hearts, that we become close to the presence of God and we feel that little burning ember inside of us start to to glow and to burn once again. And the Spirit's wind blows into us, and we feel a strengthening that does not come from ourselves. It's not a matter of our will or that we willed ourselves into it. It's the very presence of the Comforter, the paraclete of God at work within your situation, that you're not alone in that room when you're grieving. Can I say it again? You're not alone in that room when you're grieving, that the paraclete, the Comforter, is there in your midst when you there. So what do you do? You develop a routine. Get up. Make yourself a cup of coffee, a piece of toast. Read the newspaper. Get dressed and shower. Can I just tell you, the benefits of getting dressed and shower is not only just for other people, (laughs) but that something happens when you kind of just get into the routine of just getting ready in the morning. You feel a little more human. You feel a little more put together, and you go just... So get yourself dressed, get yourself showered, usually in the opposite order, okay? (laughs) And then, and you know, and do something, you know, develop a hobby, go work in the garden, have something that breaks up your day. This is especially challenging, you know, I've talked to my mom about this, she needs this because she's retired, and it was just her and dad for the longest time, and so now dad's not there. So you're usually around each other, you're engaging in conversation, you're sharing life together, and now you don't have that, so what's going to break up your day? If nothing's breaking up your day, all you're thinking and focused on is the loss, the sadness, the emptiness. But if you have something that you can put your energy into to create, to make, to see, to enjoy, that's a wonderful thing if you can include that as part of your life. That's not to say that some days you won't be a part of that routine. Not to say that some days you'll fall off the wagon a little bit and maybe forget to do something. It's okay to give yourself a day to do that, but just get up and try again the next day. You might feel like you may never be able to move forward, but God is present to grant you the grace to keep going. Someone shared this with me. This is uh, the cycles of grief, and usually you'll go down before you go up. So you'll go down to kind of a place of loneliness and isolation. But eventually, as you start to recognize that there's a change that takes place, as you start to move forward, you'll start to see that um, you'll start to develop new relationships, new strengths, new patterns, 
hope, uh, helping others, and adjusting to the loss. But that only happens if you kind of recognize that you're on the downward slide, but then you recognize, I need to get into a place where I'm doing something again and getting involved. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 says this, is that there, the need for not getting stuck in a cycle is important because we got to recognize that when we allow God to comfort us, then we are equipped now to comfort others. And so 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 says, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and God of all what? Comfort. Who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from who? From God. So the grace of God, the comfort of God, the goodness of God is imparted to us as we spend time with the God of all comfort, and then we redistribute that grace, that goodness, and that comfort. It says, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. God gives us grace to get through our grief. He comforts our broken and weary hearts, and then we use what we have received to give it to someone else so that we can be the source of someone else's comfort. Imagine that, where you are right now. Like, I can't see myself giving anything to anybody right now. That's because you're empty right now. That's because you've experienced loss. It's called loss for a reason. But when you allow God to pour into you what you need and what you lack, then you start to be able to turn things around and redeeming your grace and redeeming your difficulties and turning around so you can be a blessing to someone else so that you can walk somebody else through their journey too. But it's important that we need to learn how to be gracious in grief. Job's friends were great until they opened their mouths. (laughs) Absolutely true. So Job goes through this terrible ordeal. And it says in Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, when Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard about the troubles that had come upon him, among other things, the deaths of his son and daughters, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, and they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their head. That's a Hebrew sign of mourning, by the way. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. That's, you know, if we just do that sometimes, that's the best thing you can do. But then Job's friends feel like, I've got to fix Job. I've got to correct his theology. I've got to delve into the cause of his suffering and pain. So they said, Job, what would you do to make God mad? Job, what did you do that God would punish you in such a way? Not recognizing that if you read anything about the first two chapters of Job, you recognize that this didn't have anything to do with God afflicting him. It had everything to do with God recognizing the righteousness and faith of Job, removing the hedge of protection around him, and Satan having his way with Job. Not because God didn't care about Job, not because God didn't believe that Job was good, but for the simple reason, I need to prove a point to you, Satan, that my people follow me, not because of the good things I do to them or for them, but because of their righteousness and their faith. And so they misappropriated it. 
They saw an attack from Satan as an attack from God. They say, well, Job, you know, what would you do wrong? I've done nothing wrong. Come on, Job, admit it. You've done something wrong. And they would do long-winded speeches, and they would preach at Job, and, and Job is just sitting there. It's like he's covered in boils and ashes, and he has nothing left, and even his wife told him to curse God and die. And they're saying, okay, Job, let's, let's fix this. Sometimes people don't need to be fixed. They just need you to sit with them. So much so that in Job chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says, after they spoke to me, he says, I've heard many such things, and you're miserable comforters, all of you. You are the worst. You are miserable comforts to me. So what can we learn from this? Is that the gift of presence is probably one of the most important things you can do. Being there for someone when they're going through grief is one of the best things you can do. People won't remember what you said until you say something dumb. Just going to be honest with you. And believe me, we as Christians, we sometimes say dumb things to people when they lost somebody. All the time. You know why? Because we're not comfortable with death. You know why? Because we don't know how to deal with it from a Christian perspective. You know why? Because we want to make somebody feel better, but sometimes we end up making them feel worse. So what do we need to do? Be present. When they talk, let them talk. Listen. You might hear some things that would surprise you coming out of their mouths, but don't be alarmed. They're just working through the raw emotions of it all. Be loving and supportive. Be a steady voice guiding them the truth and reality. How can you help them? You can help them just by being there when they have to make tough decisions. I know that week that I was with my mom, there was many times that you dreaded the phone ringing. Every two hours we got calls. Every two hours it was news that was worse. And so for her to be there alone dealing with that would have been very difficult. But me being there while the phone is on speakerphone and I'm there with her and I'm rubbing her back as she's saying, the doctor's saying, it's cancer. It's a, it's a very developed cancer. It's a very aggressive cancer. And we don't think he's going to make it. He has a few days, maybe a week. And I didn't say anything to for my mom right there. I'm just there. And I let her talk. And I let her she, speak. And I let her share and sometimes we just need to be there. And there are times where it's very raw emotionally. It's very upsetting. It's very, it, sometimes it's anger that rises up too. And so when they say that, just listen. Don't try and correct their theology. Just reaffirm the, you know, uh, God's goodness in the midst of it. Reaffirm grace. Be present for them. Help them with the decisions that need to be made. There were times that I, mom and I would have to make decisions that were not pleasant decisions. But I wouldn't push you know, I'm a planner, I'm a preparer, that's what I, what I do. So I'm like, let's lay out all the things, but my mom can only take one thing at a time. And sometimes as you go through grief with people, they can only take things one step at a time. And be patient with them. Be gracious with them. Be careful what you say with, to them and with them. Things you can do that are simple, just help with everyday things like cleaning or a meal or just things around the house. We become carriers of God's grace and comfort when we're just there when people need them. Final thought. As I've been talking a lot about grief and go, just going through death, I want to take a moment to talk about things that you can and should do before your time comes. Something that you can do to make the pain of your passing a lot less stressful for those you leave behind. You have to understand, too, that when someone goes in a family, it's not even just the, the, the shock and the difficulty of the loss of the person. It's all the decisions that have to be made. And they usually have to be made pretty quickly. 
What kind of burial do you want? Where should they be buried? Do you want to be cremated or do you want a traditional burial? When should the service be? Uh, who do you want to notify about this? Can you write this obituary? All of these things. And then eventually you're kind of like, uh, and it's tough. And then you get the bill. And then you realize it's $4,000 just to be cremated or $9,000 to be buried in the ground. And then all of a sudden the family's like, well, how are we going to pay for that? Fortunately, my mom had life insurance. Praise God for that. But the question is, are you ready for your time? Well, Pastor, I don't want to talk about this. We just got through coronavirus. And we don't have to wear a mask today. So why are you talking about death? And why are you talking about preparing for death? Listen, can I just tell you that if you can help your family by having them know your wishes before it's time for them to go, you will alleviate a lot of stress. You will alleviate a lot of that burden. And you will help them greatly in their time of need. No one likes to talk about dying so plan ahead for you when your time comes. You don't like talking about dying, but eventually someone's going to have to talk about it, and it's probably not you. It'll probably be other people. If it isn't you, your family will have to discuss it when you're gone. One of the ways that we show that we're ready to go to be with the Lord is getting our house in order. Have you heard that phrase before in the Scriptures? And he got his house in order, or she got her house in order, and they, they went to be with their fathers. The idea behind that is that the person of faith understood that their time was coming soon, didn't ignore it, didn't live in a fantasy world pretending it wasn't going to happen. Believe me, all in your planning, you can still have faith that God can heal and God can restore you while having your house in order. You can do both. I used to say to my dad, Dad, what's your retirement plan? He's like, the Lord's my retirement plan. Great. Great. If it weren't for my mother's life insurance policy, it would have been a different story, I think. You know what I mean? So there are some things that we can do to plan and prepare for. Lifeway Research lists three ways and a fourth that I've had that we can put our house in order before our time comes. Number one, by putting your financial situation in order. Things like your will, life insurance, having your property in the name of your spouse or family members or beneficiaries will make sure that there isn't a huge amount of stress or financial difficulty on the part of you or family after you pass. The cost of a funeral just alone can be a massive stress on your family. So plan accordingly. You know, there are other times where a spouse passes away, and if you're an old-fashioned person, like an old stubborn guy, everything's in your name. Guess what happens when you die? It's not in your wife's name or your spouse's name. The state comes in and says, we're freezing everything. Now we're going to assess tax to it, and you're going to have to pay the taxes on those things before you can have those released. That's a lot of stress on a family. So if you have things in order, you have things in you and your spouse's name, she doesn't have to worry if you go. It's all right there and taken care of. If you go and you're the only surviving member and you have it in the name of your beneficiaries, you're going to make sure that they don't go through unnecessary stress and difficulty on the part of, uh, you know, the state and working things out. This should be a time to grieve. This should be a time to mourn, not dealing with all this other stuff. Secondly, by formalizing your funeral plans. Planning a funeral after a loved one has passed is an incredibly emotional experience. Knowing what they want before they die takes a lot of the guesswork out of preparations. It's also an opportunity for you to show courage and faith by letting your family know what's important to you. So if you haven't had that conversation, have that conversation. Like, Dad, what do you want when you die? What kind of question is that, son? 
It's like, well, you know, have you ever thought about it? Like, who do you want to do the service? Where do you want to be buried? You know, what do you want? What's, what's your favorite scripture verse? What do you want people to know? Instead of us kind of grasping for straws and trying to figure out, like, what would they have wanted? Instead of knowing this is what mom and dad wanted, and that's what we're going to do. This is what my sibling wanted. That's what we're going to do. This is what my good friend wanted. That's what we're going to do. And by doing so, you honor them and you honor the Lord in that as well. Thirdly, by mending family fences. You know, sometimes there are times where you go through life and there are things that are left unsaid. There are grudges that have been held on to. There are unresolved family issues. You know, when you realize time is coming towards an end, value every moment that you have with that person and take the opportunity to say the things that might be difficult to say and that have yet been unsaid. It's a time for forgiveness. It's a time for restoration. It's a time to express your love for someone that you may have not had a chance to do so before. And you might say, well, I'll get them next time. But given how short life can be and how quickly things can turn, it's always good that when you're there, if they're able to, and awake and alert to be able to see you and receive you, then go ahead and talk to them about those things and make those things right. Fourthly and finally, making sure your heart is right with God. You know, if you have a family member that doesn't know the Lord, it's a good time to have a conversation with them about setting your house with order. There's a phrase that I often use, and it's an effective one when you're talking with someone who doesn't know the Lord, and you ask the question, have you made your peace with God yet? Have you made peace with God yet? I'm blessed that my father loved the Lord, was a prayer warrior, spoke in tongues, liked to evangelize to anyone whether you liked it or not. <laughs> I'm an introvert. He was an extrovert. He didn't care. He just like, anybody's going to hear about the Lord. So I'm blessed that I know where my dad is. But if you have a family member that doesn't know the Lord, there's a, a phrase that you should probably use when you're talking to them. Say, Mom, Dad, brother, sister, have you made peace with God? Well, I don't know what that is. Let me tell you what that is. Let me show you how. And talk to them about it. And there's been times I've been able to talk to people about that and led them to the Lord in that moment so that they know that when they go, they have peace, knowing where they're going, and they know that everything that's happened with the Lord, all their past has been washed away, and there's peace with God. And that can be a powerful moment. Sometimes we're like, well, we don't want to burden them. We don't accept them. Listen, there's sensitivity for everything. I get it. But there are times, too, where you recognize time is short for this person, and you may not have another opportunity. Usually at the beginning of a person's journey with their health problems is when they're strongest and most alert. Towards the end, they're usually not very responsive. They're sleeping a lot. They might not even be able to respond to you. So when, as soon as you hear about these happening, make sure you have that visit and conversation so that you know and they know where they're going. Are you still with me today? Amen. I know this sounds like a seminar, I'm sure. I'm not going to sell you life insurance, although you should have it. But, <laughs> but I want you to know is that when we, when we as Christians, we can be people of faith. We can be people that believe in miracles and still be people who are prepared. We can people that, be people that love God and serve him with, with, with honor and gladness and not betray our faith and trust in him in our prayers by having things ready just in case. By doing so, we're showing. Even as those moments come when we 
come to the situation confidently. And we say, you know what, Lord, I don't want to die, but if it comes to this, I'm ready to see you face to face. I can't wait to step on those shores. I can't wait to see you face to face and have you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. And as much as we hate the gray veil of death that comes before us, or as the the old timers used to say, crossing Jordan, remember that the promised land is on the other side. So when you know it like that, like, okay, I'm going to face it with courage. I'm going to face it with boldness. But this morning, you're still here. Maybe you've dealt with the loss of someone. And then there's times where it's recent, and sometimes it's been far and a long time away. I remember my brother talking to me about just uh, experiencing grief and loss of my grandmother, who died 20 years ago. Recently. Why? Because we are too quick to get through grief. and We don't always deal with it, and it comes out at the most inopportune times. There are times that we are grieving now, but then there's times where we've been grieving our whole life and we don't necessarily realize it. But what about you? Are you going through grief? Are you still experiencing the pain, the loneliness, the absence that goes along with not having that person in your life anymore? I want you to know that even though it's painful, God is there. The comforter, the paraclete is there. And he gives us grace for each moment, strength for each decision, and he will sustain you. I wonder today, if we could just bow our heads right now and just say, Pastor Dan, still dealing with that loss. Still experiencing that grief. Still hard for me. Some days I'm doing really good, and then there's other days I'm not doing so hot. I just need God's strength for right now and the days ahead. If that's where you're at, acknowledging your grief is a wonderful thing. Acknowledging your sadness and pain is a wonderful thing because it means that person meant a lot to you, and they still do. But the Lord's able to do healing in your heart and grant you grace and strength for the day. If you're dealing with that right now, say, Pastor Dan, you know, as you're talking... That really spoke to me, and would you keep me in prayer because I'm still dealing with that grief right now. Just lift a hand up before the Lord right now. Just let me know. Pastor, pray for me. Thank you. Anyone else? Pray for me, Pastor. I need God's strength and grace to bring me through. Let's pray. Dear God, you see the heart of the grieving today. You know the sadness that fills it. And you recognize how grief has pushed all other emotions aside and weighs heavily on them. You see them, God. Hear them, God. Please help them accept their loved one was called home too soon. Take away their anger and replace it with greater acceptance of your will. I pray for your healing of their endless sadness and constant grief that prevents them from living. Help them to see the good in life. Help them to see your grace at work in the day-to-day activities. And refocus their attention on their family and those who need them. Guide them to find new ways to cope with their loss and renew their soul and refill their heart with your eternal love. May they discover your grace that is made perfect in times of weakness. We 
pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.